welcome to If You've Come This Far. This is a podcast that my friend Sean and I do where we invite uh, interesting people onto the, onto the Zoom call to have authentic conversations, most broadly in terms of what they're doing to make the world uh, a better place or, or to make life more meaningful. Um, and, uh, and Sean came across this next guest, uh, Angela Saini, um, and I will let Sean tell you all about her. Yeah, I just, I, you know, I love when we invite people to come join us that are delightful and smart. And, and I, I sit there wondering, wow, how did we get this person to come talk to us? Um, so I, I, what so happens in, in all the literature I read about, um, you know, if you will, the state of men, um, I come upon certain things and in, in the one particular article referenced Angela's book, the patriarchs, um, the origin of inequality and uh, looked at a couple blurbs, went and got the book, read the book. And then I noticed that she had written a book called inferior, which is how basically how science got women wrong. Um, and uh, read that also an excellent book. And so I thought given what we do and, who you and I like to talk to, um, she, she would have been, she would be an ideal guest and, uh, that she was. Yeah, no, she's, she's a prolific writer. I mean, not only you you mentioned two of her books and then she also wrote superior, the return of race science. Um, but, uh, I, I thought it was interesting that she, um, was educated as an engineer, um, before taking the turn to be, a journalist and an author, which seems like the best thing that could have happened to any of us, that that this woman would end up writing books about these really complicated um, issues. And they're, and all these books, I believe, are fairly research heavy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, not, these are it's, not opinion pieces. No, she's she's um, collating a bunch of different research to, you know, and looking at different sides of, of both of these issues. Um and and again, not having read Superior, which is the is, which is the book on race, I'm sure it it fits with the other two as well. Um, yeah, and she told us that she's actually just started um, teaching a scientific writing class at MIT. Her first her first go at teaching uh, this semester. The the other the other uh, before we get started, I think the other thing that I I've thought was really fascinating is is her take on sort of bunk science and, and bad research. Um, uh-huh. And it reminded me a lot of Emma Varva, Varva Lucas, who's trying to do a similar thing with media, which is a, mm-hmm. a bigger, more uh, unwieldy beast, but um, also important for us to be able to, to identify science that isn't founded uh, or, or is biased in some way. So I love that, that part of her work too. And that, as we talk about, comes out in both of the books where there's, you know, there's a critical eye towards the bias that may be in some of the, some of the research or discovery, anthropological stuff, um, discoveries that further either this inferiority of women or, um, you know, efforts to further the patriarchy. Um, when, when in fact it was likely not good science. I, th- I think, uh, I think the listeners are really going to enjoy Angela. Yeah, I, I know I did. Let's do it. Yep. Okay. Angela, thanks I, Thanks for joining us. I mean, I think in my original email to you, um, 
you know, given what we do at Men Living, which is really kind of focused on, um, you know, bringing men together for connection and healing and growth and really just kind of looking at our place in the world in a different way. Yeah. Uh, I came upon a reference to you in your book, The Patriarchs. Mm -hmm. And so um, read it, loved it. And and then, as oh, I said in my note, you know, quickly went to Inferior. Now, I have not read mm -hmm. Superior yet. Um, <laughs> But there's just so much, I think, for, for us to talk about. And 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 given uh, the interest of our listeners in mm. the topic that, uh, you know, we just, there's a lot we'd like to cover with you today. So, yeah, so thanks for, for, for joining us. I'm happy to. Um, I, I actually kind of want to start in a, in a different place, mm. though. Um, mm. And Chris and I were talking about this. So you um, founded and kind of head up, and I don't know if it's still active, this challenging pseudoscience yeah, I group. Yeah. And I, you know, I think in, in both of the books, there's a um, kind of, you reference multiple times, the quality of the science and, mm -hmm. and the, the, the gendering of science. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious as we get into this, because uh, both books, the foundation of both books, I think is very much uh, associated with either um, biology or psychology or anthropology. Mm -hmm. What's your current take on the qu the quality of science in the world? <laughs> it's difficult. I do still run the challenging pseudoscience group. You do. We don't, okay. We don't. It's hard to find us online because we don't have a website and we don't have an online presence. The way we work is more behind the scenes. We run projects. We fund projects, and those projects work independently. Um, and that's quite deliberate because we've already been doxxed once. <laughs> so, so it's better. I think sometimes it's better to do certain kinds of work, just do the work rather than publicizing the work. Yeah. Um, so that's the approach we've taken. Um, and certainly in my writing, I mean, as a journalist, I'm looking really at the hard end of when scientists get things wrong. So I'm most of the time, mainstream scientists are doing very good work that is very rigorous, that is well peer reviewed, um, that is thorough, that is trustworthy. Um, but as a reporter, uh, my job is to look at when that doesn't happen, um, mm -hmm. when things really go wrong. And they do go wrong. And I think sometimes more often than we'd like to admit, and for lots of different reasons. Mm -hmm. So a friend of mine, um, Ivan Aransky runs Retraction Watch. I don't know if it's a website you've ever looked at, but if you go there, it is essentially a repository, uh, a log of uh, journal articles, science journal articles that have been retracted for whatever reason. And when you when you look at that and you see what gets retracted, you see that it happens for lots of different reasons. Sometimes they are genuine mistakes. Sometimes they're deliberate mistakes mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. scientists have hoped that nobody would notice. Sometimes it's um, conflicts of interest get involved, whether mm -hmm. that's funding or personal or political. Um, and sometimes, uh, as I document in Inferior and in Superior, and to some extent also in the Patriarchs, it is um, personal bias and prejudice right. that is affecting right. how research is done, which mm -hmm. skews it and sometimes can that can persist for a really long time. So in the case of sexism in the sciences, you know, we're talking here about an establishment built originally, modern science, modern European science was built on this uh, idea that 
women weren't even capable of doing intellectual work. So if you go back to the European academies of science, the big, you know, like the Royal Society in London, um, they didn't admit women as members from the beginning because it was just assumed that women were not capable of doing this work. They were just intellectually a different breed of person almost. Mm. They, they're a different category of human. Um, so it just wasn't their place. And so when you start with that premise, and remember how long that persisted, the Royal Society only admitted women, started admit, admitting women as members in 1945. So this oh, is hundreds of right. years of this, you know, these problems. Um, so when you start with that premise, of course, you are going to develop theories that just reinforce that just you know in the 19th century you have for example evolutionary biologists uh, not evolutionary biologists sorry you ha you have neurologists and biologists claiming for example that um if women try to go to university and do the same work as men that their reproductive capacities will be compromised oh, because boy. they can't take the right. strain you know right. that their yeah. brains are of different size and that's what makes them less intelligent so there's all these kind of you know, bizarre ideas that emerge from that original, um, those original prejudices, original biased assumptions. And um, as I explain, you know, in, in the work, that can carry on for a really long time. You know, that yeah. becomes dogma. And then it's very difficult once it's in the literature, once it's established as dogma, for it to then be challenged. Well, and it's funny, we're not even talking about debunking what comes to us through media. We're, mm. we're just focused on research, uh, or mm. which which ought to be sort of more reliable. Mm. Um, so Angela, at one point in your book, you talk about social transformation being a function of normalizing. And um, I'm, I'm curious, like, how much of a role do you think research plays in that normalizing? And of course, the answer for today might be totally different than the answer from 1945 <laughs> versus 1600, et cetera. But maybe uh, not. Maybe not. Or maybe not. Maybe knows? not. Yeah. Well, the, th the thing is, whichever time we're in, we normalize it. <laughs> so whatever prejudices we have now, it's very difficult for us to recognize them because um, we're within them. We've been we've been raised within them. And so we treat that as, you know, just given that this is just how it is and how it's always been. And every age feels that way. 19th century scientists didn't think of themselves as sexist at all. You know, <laughs> they just thought they right. were doing good science and they were being perfectly objective and fair. And, you know, why, why are people, you know, they thought they were rational. They were being completely rational. Um, and that is true to this day. And I think it would be a mistake for us to imagine that today we're so enlightened and so perfect as human beings that we do science um, without bias. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and only 20 years ago, they were doing it with bias. Um, of course, that still persists, but the prejudices of the past get revised and corrected. And that has happened. So we can look back at some of that, that, that 19th century or early 20th century work and say, you know, what were they thinking? That doesn't make any sense. We know that that's not true. Yeah. We have good evidence to refute it. Um, but that is a constant process where, you know, people in 100 years will be doing that with with the work that we're do people are doing now. And, and I still read, you know, I still come across papers. I'm still sent papers because I get press releases from universities and journals. I still get sent papers that I think this is not very good research. And like I said, retractions are still happening all the time.
If I may, real quick, um, ask before we get into the questions about Angela's writing and Angela's research, if I could ask mm -hmm. a question just about Angela real quick. Um, you uh, you describe yourself on your LinkedIn page, I think, as a, as a journalist and an author, um, but I believe you studied engineering. Is that, am I getting that right? Yep, that's right. In the UK, uh, traditionally, people haven't always studied journalism to become journalists. So a lot of us, yeah. a lot of us who are science journalists, in fact, and I think this is also probably true in the US, although that's changing. Um, we have lots of different backgrounds and then we specialize in certain subjects. So in the science writing community, you know, I have friends who just do quantum physics or who just do astronomy or <laughs> just do astrophysics. And we tend to be specialized in those areas. Um, and for a long time, I covered engineering stories and tech and stuff like that, quite hard science. Um, I came to the science of human difference relatively late and partly because um, I was asked by an editor to write a story on the menopause and that kind of was my mm. opening into this world that I didn't really, I, I, I never had much of a conception of how loaded, politically loaded that field was um, and that was my introduction to it. Well, uh, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, hold on, Charles, I got I to gotta complete this thought real quick, sorry, then I'm going to shut up. But like, I'm, I, I, the, the source of the question is, is what makes you tick? And was that all intentional? Like, did you know all along that you wanted to be a communicator of the research or versus conducting the research? Oh, no, not at all. When I went to university, I had every intention of becoming an engineer and all my um Summer jobs were in engineering firms at BMW, London uh -huh. Underground. I spent loads of time with the engineers, but I got involved in student politics like so many students do, and especially mm -hmm. anti-racist politics because of where I grew up in southeast London. At that time, the far right was very active. There were a number of racist murders uh, in that area where I lived, and that really cast a big shadow over my teenage years. So when I got to university, I got very much involved in that. And that's how I started writing for the student press and got more involved in that side of things. So I think if that hadn't been my upbringing, I probably would be an engineer now. Probably. Maybe making no, less I, of a mark. Sorry, go ahead, Sean. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to save the menopause discussion for later, but I, you brought it up. So, cause it was one of the things in, in both the books that really blew me away. And it's, and it's, and it's, and it's weird because in the sense that I had met this new couple and I asked the woman is just going through menopause and I, you know, I'm just being sensitive. I asked her how, how it's going. And she was like, what? I'm just trying to be sensitive. But anyway, anyways, I, I tell them the story about your, the, what you write about menopause in inferior. And mm -hmm. so, so Chris, just for your benefit, it, I knew some a little bit around, you know, the asylum thing, but but the mm. theory about the fact that women might be, you know, go through menopause or move to infertility at an earlier age because there's a bigger um, role for them in supporting. If I'm getting the, correct me if I'm getting mm. it wrong, but supporting their children's families and their kids and moving them along because if if they could still have their own kids and they wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to as grandmothers be able to support the the families that theory blew me away i mean so mm -hmm. can you can you tell can you talk more about that well so precisely did i get it right 
Not quite, but <laughs> I'll just recap it quickly. Almost. Shocker. <laughs> so the grandmother hypothesis, and I'm not saying this is correct. It may is this is just one idea yeah. that evolutionary yeah. biologists have yeah. to explain the big mystery here is not that we lose fertility. Uh, other primates also lose fertility at around the same age, so around their forties. The difference is that many of them die at around that age. So mm-hmm. around the same time that they lose fertility, they die. What is remarkable about humans is that we live so long into our infantile years and we have to remember that men also lose fertility not quite at the same pace but Mm -hmm. and not quite so abruptly but they also lose fertility um so that's the big mystery why do we live so long into our infertile years if evolution is all about reproduction (laughs) then Mm -hmm. then what purpose Mm -hmm. does that serve so the grandmother hypothesis is this idea that um the presence of grandmothers really does help um, the survival of their children and grandchildren, that it raises their odds of survival and they tend to live longer. And certainly we have good statistical evidence, even in the modern day, that that is true in many cases, that the presence of a grandmother does lead to those kind of outcomes. Um, so we could assume that it may have been like that for human societies in the past, but that that is just one idea. Yeah. It could be it could be many other factors. It could be many different factors, to be honest, mm-hmm. including, you know, the way that we live, um, cooperation in lots of different ways. Because we are not one of these species in which child caring is done just by the mother. Right. We are. We have many different. As Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, the evolutionary biologist, describes it, alloparents. So these are, you know, all the different people who are involved mm-hmm. in raising your kids. You know, for me, it will be it'll include my son's teachers. He's at uh-huh. school right now. They are mm-hmm. also raising him. You know, it's yeah. not just me teaching him. Um, it includes parents, grandparents, siblings play a huge role in all around the world in the raising of younger kids. Um, aunts, uncles, all of this. So, and also the wider society. You know, when we say it takes mm-hmm. a village, it really does take a village. And when you think about it, even if you live in a nuclear family and you don't have much extended family around you, I guarantee that you'll be leaning on other people in the ra- in the uh, development of your kids and the raising of your mm-hmm. children. And for humans, that's particularly important because our children are helpless for quite a long time, unlike other species where they're pretty independent quite quickly sometimes. For humans, our babies are helpless for a really long time. So we, so we need those networks. Mm-hmm. It, it, it may not look like it, Angela, but Sean and I are both easily old enough to have been around the parenting track uh, enough to know how hard that is and how impossible that is to do by ourselves. So is that, is that a case? Is that sort of hypothesis a case where the research is ascribing causation based on just a correlation? Um, No, it's just a theory. Um, So we can't, you know, it's just another, it's one theory out of many, um, but it's one for which you can create models evolutionary models using computers and then you can extrapolate and so it holds some weight it holds more weight than perhaps some other theories Mm -hmm. so one other theory for instance says that um and this is how i got into this whole subject in the first place because when i was asked to write that piece about the menopause a paper had just been published by three canadian researchers arguing that the reason that older women are infertile is because 
throughout evolutionary history, older women just weren't having sex. Right. <laughs> Which right. is such right. a, right. you know, runs counter right. to the experience of real right. women. Um, so that was highly derided when it comes out. And it doesn't have a very good mechanism because we don't, we it just doesn't have a very good mechanism. So we, you know, there are some theories for which we have more support, other theories for which you have less. The grandmother hypothesis is a pretty good one, but I don't, that doesn't mean it can explain in that entire story. Yeah. It probably yeah. explains a portion of it. It just goes to it. Just further evidence that Canadians are not trustworthy. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think, oh boy, here we go. Oh Nobody boy. thinks that. Nobody oh thinks. That. <laughs> of course. This episode of If You've Come This Far is brought to you by Half Acre Beer Company, makers of Daisy Cutter Pale Ale and many other fine ales and lagers. Visit them at their brewery located at 2050 West Balmoral Avenue in Chicago's beautiful Bowmanville neighborhood. So, uh, so let's let's move to um, the origins of inequality, mm-hmm. um, the the uh, the patriarchs or the patriarchy. Um, so how did so so how did the patriarchy start? Um, I wish it was a simple explanation. I do sometimes get asked by people, you know, when's the date and where's the place? Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, you, do. you don't need to be exact. <laughs> no, and it's hard because the the fact is that male domination as a way of organizing a society varies so much in different parts of the world and it's not universal. So sometimes when we use the word patriarchy, we imagine it to be this all-encompassing universal thing. And it's really not. There are at least 160 matrilineal societies around the world that can't be said, I don't think, to be patriarchal in the sense that we understand it, in which there is, you know, the rule of the father. That's what patriarchy means, that the father Mm. is the ultimate authority within the family. You know, for them, that just isn't true. And then also there are so many different forms that patriarchy takes around the world that are culturally specific and have their own histories. You know, in some parts of the world it's older, in some parts of the world it's newer. Um, But the argument I make in the patriarchs is that if we just look at the evidence, if we just take the evidence that we have in archaeology and history and biology and all these different disciplines, um, in the acknowledgement that that evidence could change, that new you know, new things could turn up very easily. I mean, this could be very different. This book could be very different in 50 or 100 years. But given what we have now, what we can say is that it hasn't always been this way. We don't have good evidence for that because the further we go back in history, the more social variation we see. So it's not that you see things getting more and more... um, kind of fixed in patriarchy, actually you see a lot more differences in how people live, more, much more cultural variation and social variation. And when you go all the way back, so the earliest I could go was um, to the Neolithic. So this mm-hmm. is, you know, the Stone Age. If you look at one of the earliest settlements that we have evidence from, which is Chattelhuyuk, this this was last occupied around 7400 BCE so this is thousands of years earlier than the first pyramids in Egypt thousands of years before Stonehenge even predates writing here we have a settlement um in modern day turkey so it's in southern anatolia so in turkey bordering syria um 
near the Fertile Crescent. So these, this is where the, some of the earliest civilizations then emerged, human civilizations that we have evidence from emerged. And there we see thousands of people living together and not much difference in how men and women live. Right. You know, all the data that we have tells us, all the archaeological data that we have from there tells us that men and women ate pretty much the same food, they did pretty much the same work, they spent around the same amount of time indoors and outdoors. Even the height difference between men and women is slight. You know, mm. so this idea that we have that there is some kind of hard and fast sex difference that is universal and timeless is actually not borne out by this evidence. Um and women weren't invisible either. You know, so even if the even if people lived the same way but there were ideas about men and women, what you see is loads of female figurines from that period of time. Mm -hmm. In fact, more female figurines than male figurines, um, the most famous of which from Chattelhuyuk is the seated woman of Chattelhuyuk, which I saw. In, I went to Chattelhuyuk myself when I was researching the book, and I saw this figurine, which is now in a museum, and it shows um, what looks to be an older woman sitting, her back completely bolt upright, you know, completely straight, um, appearing to be facing ahead, these rolls of fat spilling around out around her, you know, behind her, around her, everywhere. These deep indentations in her skin, which are, which possibly denote age, and underneath her resting hands are what look to be two big cats looking straight ahead. It's it's such a figure of authority, um, mm -hmm. and certainly when she was excavated in the 1960s, she was described as the great goddess. That archaeologists assumed she must have been a representation of a goddess. Now, more recently, archaeologists think because that figure is so naturalistic that possibly she was a real person, possibly you know a matriarch within her family or her society. But what we can say. Uh, we can't say anything definitive, but what we can say is that there doesn't seem to have been any kind of gender hierarchy in how people lived at Chattelhuyuk. And so the big question for us then is, when did it change? It changed mm -hmm. at some point. It definitely yeah. changed because modern day Turkey is quite patriarchal. Um, so, you know, when did that turning point come? And what I would argue, just based on the evidence that we have, that turning point came with the emergence of the first states. This is many thousands of years later. Um, with those big first states, the big concern was population. You know, how do we just imagine, you know, people are living in lots of different ways, some as hunter-gatherers, some in these big settlements. They can leave whenever they want. They can come and go. <laughs> there is no, they're not bound by anything. So in those early states, the big um, concern was for the elites, which would have included men and women at the beginning, how do we get people to come and work for us, produce a surplus for those at the top of society, mm. defend us, defend the borders right. of this state that we're creating um, and not just disappear and leave because they don't like it? Um, so population was their biggest issue. And it still is. You know, that's still a big concern for modern day states. Um, we still judge the size of nations, not really by land mass, but by population more than anything else. Um, so given that concern about population, inevitably, the spotlight would have fallen on families because families are the unit by which we reproduce. <laughs> but, you know, that's a basic unit of population. Um, and so what you see over time, and this is over thousands of years, is that very gradually 
Um, and the brilliant historian Gerda Lerner, the late historian who in the 1980s wrote about patriarchy in ancient Mesopotamia, she showed how women gradually started to disappear from the historical record. So they were there at the beginning and they were less there at the end. Mm -hmm. Pressure began to fall on young women to have as many children as possible and pressure fell on young men if they weren't having those children, they weren't giving birth to those children to defend the state. Uh -huh. And so you can see from those kind of twin concerns with reproduction and defense how you get the basis of today's ideas about masculinity and femininity, that kind of binary gendered idea about what we want from women and what we want from men. What we want from women is babies and what we want from men is fighting, you know, defense right. and this right. stoicism, bravery in, in to, to defend the state, whether you want to or not. You know, not all women make good mothers or want to have children or can have yeah. children. And certainly not all men want to fight, but the demands of the patriarchal state are that um, you don't have a choice. You know, you have to do this because that's your duty to the state. Uh, something that only just occurred to me, even though I, I, I read your book, but um, that type of gender norming doesn't necessarily lead to patriarchy, right? Like there was, mm. other, there was other stuff at play here. Um, with, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't have to be this way because you can construct even a hierarchical, socially hierarchical state in lots of different ways. You can have women defending you, and lo loads of modern-day states do have women mm -hmm. in the military defending people. Um, you don't have to put all the burden of reproduction and childcare just on young women. You can you can divide it in lots of different ways. Um, but I think one of the necessary conditions for patriarchy is um, patrilocality. So the reason I think that certain states went in this direction rather than, for example, becoming matriarchies or becoming socially unequal in some other way, is that um, we as humans, it's not ideal for us to marry and have children over generations within our own small communities. Obviously, you know, that's not good for the gene pool to keep doing mm. that. And we know that. Um, so generally, most societies in the world practice some kind of um, movement when it comes to marriage practices. Uh, you know, sometimes the woman leaves and marries outside the community, or sometimes the man leaves and marries outside the community, or sometimes, you know, you have ambilocality where either happens, which is generally the case in the West these days that, you know, it's either or. Um, but patrilocality, what it does, um, and it is quite common around the world, what it does is that it creates uh, conditions for women who get married in which they are immediately vulnerable. Because if you imagine, if you're leaving your the safety and security and love of the family that you've been raised in, and you're being sent when you get married to essentially what can sometimes be a stranger. And in many states until relatively recently, may even be have been enemies because right. the, the practice of captive taking often involved captive taking of women into marriage. And that is still practiced in some places in the world, um, especially mm -hmm. in, in war conditions. Um, so, you know, this taking of these women into into families in which they were essentially strangers and not always trusted because they might, you know, belong to the enemy. 
Um, so you immediately do not have that network of support around you anymore. And that's where power resides. Power does not come from physical strength only. In fact, the way that power is generally exercised in the world is not through physical strength, individual physical strength generally. If you look at the leaders of the world, they're not you know, they're not weightlifters and athletes. We don't elect <laughs> the physically strongest people to run the country. The most powerful yeah. people in the world are not the physically strongest people in the world. Power rests in your ability to command support from other people. How many, how much support you have around you? What? How big are your networks around you that you can call on? That is, even among other primates, that's how they gain power. So for example, chimpanzees who are a male dominated species and most of the violence in among chimpanzees does not happen by males on females it happens between males right. <laughs> and it's generally the alpha male is not the one who is necessarily the biggest bully or the strongest it is the one who can form the best alliances with others who can call on lots of individuals to support him uh, and the same for bonobos who are um, female dominated and equally close to us evolutionarily as chimpanzees the reason that the adult females or the oldest females in the group have so much power is because they have these huge networks of other females around them to support them. And that is also true for humans. You know, we get our power from human support. Mm -hmm. What patrilocality essentially does is remove a person from her natural sources of support and anyone in that situation becomes vulnerable. That is true that was true in the history of slavery. If you look at tra the transatlantic slave trade, what was done to um, Africans who were traded in this way was, you know, they were bought and sold and they were immediately wrenched away from their families, immediately given a new identity. You know, they would be stripped of their existing identity, not allowed to speak their own language. You know, that was part of the process of, as uh, the slaver of, a slavery scholar, um, Orlando Patterson has written this social death. Essentially, you don't have any support mm -hmm. anymore. You are socially right. dead. Right. And that is the most vulnerable state a human being can, can be in. Is there evidence, and apologies if I missed this in the book, but is there evidence mm -hmm. of patrilocality among these primates? Oh, patrilocality? No, because primates generally don't exist in families the way that humans do. You know, they don't raise their kids in families. Um, so, yeah, generally, um, you know, among most primates, either the mother will raise the kid and it won't, won't take very long because um, they mature much more quickly. They're not like human babies. Um, and the father will be a bit peripheral or there are certain primates in which, um, and especially those who have, more than one baby at once in which the mother and the father will raise that baby. But there isn't a hierarchy within that family situation. Okay. It isn't that the father is the head of the family. That is a peculiarly human thing. You, okay. you just don't see that. So we basically talk about the establishment of the patriarchy. And, yeah. and one of the things that the men living exists is this idea that um, I'll just say that the pendulum is swung or is swinging in the opposite direction. And so um, when it comes to men going, I mean, I just read an article today in the Tribune about um, boys in high school graduations. And 
same with college. It's like seven, it's 70, 30 or 60, 40 women to men graduating college, participate in the community, depression, anxiety, loneliness, so on. Mm. Um, and certainly we can hold two ideas at, at the same time and continue the progress of equality that, that I, that I think we're making, but I'm curious from your perspective, do you, I mean, do you, do you think we're coming out of a patriarchy? I mean, I, I and again, we're you're in the United States, we're in the United mm-hmm. States. I mean, across yeah. the world is different. I mean, it's very different in a lot of yeah. in a lot of places. What I mean, what's your take on where we're at today? I think it's it's a mistake to think of it as kind of a straight line that either we're more patriarchal or we're less patriarchal. These systems can take so many different forms. They can mm-hmm. look very different. So you can have complete gender equality under the law, which generally in Western countries, women and men do now. Um, you know, it's not the case like it was, say, 150 years ago, where women were essentially the property of their husbands. Right. Um, you know, their everything they owned, everything they earned, even their children belonged to their to the fathers and not to them, to the wife. Um, so it's um you know, you can have that, but you can still have sexism and discrimination and harassment right. and abuse and domestic violence happening. So, you know, that domestic violence issue is still a huge problem. It's still, you know, we we can't say that we've overcome that. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's a product of how we're socialized, how we think about our role, um, the way that we think about who we are. And it comes back to, as I was saying earlier, this idea of what it means to be a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. For me, the end of patriarchy would be us not worrying about who is a man or a woman, not right. not not mattering so much. So almost mm-hmm. like Chattel Huyuk, that it doesn't matter. You, you can do anything. You can do everything. That's not to say that our biology doesn't interfere at all you know so we we know that men have on average twice the upper body strength of women in modern day societies but that doesn't mean that some women can't do the those heavy jobs because this is just an average that we're talking about right <laughs> you know so yeah and again with childcare, not all women are having children so you know you don't have to structure society around this idea that all women are having children because they're not so it it is more about thinking about us as individuals that we have our own you know personal natural talents and ideas and whatever we have to offer to the world and that becomes more important than our gender um and i don't think we're there yet i don't think that's the world that we're in yet yeah. for me that would be truly post patriarchal um but certainly we have made progress and i think you know when i write especially the patriarchs, this isn't a book that's looking at the last 100 years. It's looking at the last 10,000 years. And when you look at it in that span, there has been um, movements for and away from patriarchies in lots of different ways. Arguably, what we've just lived through is one of the peaks, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, compared to some previous earlier societies. Um, And... So it feels more profound and, you know, it feels like the journey is a much harder one. Um, and there is still a long way to go. But I think different people have different ideas about what equality means. I do think even today for a lot of feminists, equality means women getting paid the same as men, women um, being 
free from abuse and harassment. But beyond that, do the other systems stay intact? You know, right. do, you know. So, for example, I do a lot of talks at um, corporate talks. You, you know, at business uh, for lawyers and mm-hmm. banks and things like that. And um, women in these organisations are always talking about smashing the glass ceiling mm-hmm. and uh, imposter syndrome and how can we get a ahead how can we make sure that we're being paid the same as the men at the top of our organization when we're at the top very rare actually never do they talk about those women who come into the office after them to clear up Mm, at the end of the day living on wages who are disproportionately female you know um they never talk about them (laughs) and that is part of the equation that that is also a form of inequality and patriarchy is one of those systems that borrows from other forms of inequality. It has borrowed from, like I said, traditions and practices of captive taking and slavery. It has borrowed from xenophobia. It's borrowed from racism. It's borrowed from uh, uh, social hierarchies. It has embedded all of that into itself, and it is also embedded in them. So we have to look at it all, mm-hmm. I think, if we're going to build a truly equal society. And that's not an easy thing. Because women and men both benefit from those other systems of inequality. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, So, so, uh, you know, 10,000 years is, is the the time span that your book covers. Um, I'm just curious if, if, if there's anything you've seen in the last 10 years that Mm -hmm. gives you um, maybe not extraordinary, but, but new hope about us breaking down this patriarchy. I, d- I think that we're always pushing back. If there's one, so there was a sociologist, Louis Kosa, who argued that the human story is really one of conflict. You know, we're always, as societies, pushing and pulling. Because, every, like I said, every single person has a different idea of what an ideal society looks like, all of us. Mm-hmm. And so we're always all fighting for that. And that means conflict is inevitable, but that doesn't have to be a bad thing. That's mm. how societies move. That's how they change and get better. And then that is a constant, I think. You know, we will always be doing that. There is no mythical, perfect utopia in which everyone has everything they want and everyone is happy all the time. That is just mm. like an idea. It's an ideal that we work towards. Um, but until until that mythical point, and like I said, a completely unachievable we will constantly be in conflict. And that conflict involves forces on all sides. Um, so as much as there are people who are, for example, in the US trying to take uh, the right to abortion away from women, or there are forces in Afghanistan who are stopping young girls from going to school, there are many, many people at the same time pushing back against that, who have their own idea of what a great society should look like, a better, more equal society, and they are pushing for that all the time. Um, And particularly when I was writing The Patriarchs, the final chapter is about Iran. It's about the 1979 revolution in Iran Mm -hmm. and what happened after that. And coincidentally, just as I was finishing it, the protests began after the death of uh, Masa Amini. So this was the woman who, who... ended up dying under the custody of the morality police because she wasn't wearing her veil correctly, you know, according to the state. Um, And those protests, while there has been a crackdown by the Iranian government, have led to Iranian women essentially sticking up their middle finger to the government Uh and saying, 
you you can't do that anymore. We're not going right. to stand for it anymore. Which, believe me, when I was interviewing Iranian women a year and a half ago, didn't seem possible so mm. quickly. Yes. So that change is always happening. Um, that fight back is always happening. Um, and perhaps that is, if there is a human story, that is the persistent human story. And that's okay because we perhaps through that process we can get closer to something that is better for everyone. I'm curious uh, what the reaction has been to your book, the the patriarchs in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about the 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 pos- the positive and maybe some not so good review? It's interesting because I was anticipating quite a lot of pushback. Um, because my previous two books on sexism and racism in science, and particularly Superior, which looks at race science mm-hmm. and how the far right and you know politically motivated forces have influenced bad science, um, I got a lot of um, abuse after that book came out. In fact, so much that I'm not on. I had to leave Twitter. I had to leave Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep a very light presence online now. Um, and, um, you know, there are still white supremacists who I, I'm pretty sure have a Google alert for whatever I write Ooh. and they just come after me. So I was anticipating when the patriarchs came out that it would be similar. And actually it hasn't been, I've had really lovely emails and messages from men and women. And I think almost a gender balance in that mm. sense, you know, men, men writing and saying because essentially the argument that i'm making is that patriarchy is bad for everyone yeah it's not just women who lose out by the system like i said the patriarchal state demands a lot of men young men it demands a lot of them Mm -hmm. that they have to be providers they have to be strong they have to be brave they have to be available to defend the state millions of men have died throughout history in the Mm -hmm. name of the state so this isn't ideal for anyone nobody you know, this isn't a good system, except for those that little sliver of people at the top, the patriarchs at the very top, they're the only ones who really benefit. And I think that has spoken across the divides, which has been quite heartening. And it's an optimistic book, ultimately. It's not Yes. It's not a catalogue of how terrible things are. It's just a reminder of how we got to here and why it doesn't have to be this way. Yep. Sean and I interviewed a a woman several episodes ago named Kareth Foster, a black woman who works in diversity, equity, inclusion, Mm -hmm. um, and is seeking to sort of change the way we do that work by being more inclusive of white men and white people with the same, I think the same thinking, which is like, okay, as long as it's us against them, progress is going to be slow, yeah, yeah. but if we can pull it all together. And I also, Angela, work in the field of education, and I'm curious if you see signs of hope in the number of of, of young girls entering STEM fields, yeah, especially I as a STEM that's, student. That is improving. I mean, it was pretty bad when I was growing up. I was the only girl in a lot of my classes because I went down that physics chemistry route rather mm-hmm. than the biology chemistry. There's a lot of girls going down the biology chemistry route. There always has been, mm-hmm. and especially into medicine. But, you know, the engineering side and the mm-hmm. art, physics and maths, that there's always been fewer, at least in the West. Um, there is, it's things are better in South America and, and other parts of the world. Um, so the... Yeah, I think that is heartening. I think I'm also, you know, I find this young generation, I'm saying this as the mum of a 10-year-old, and I find this generation's um, 
willingness and comfort in thinking beyond gender really exciting and and wonderful in a way. Uh, my son genuinely doesn't care <laughs> you know, if he has friends who are boys or friends who are girls. And maybe it's because we live in New York and everyone's doing everything. And, you know, he he even to this day, even though he's 10 years old, gets people's pronouns mixed up. I think because it's not high uppermost in his mind whether someone is a man or a woman or a girl or a boy. It's kind of quite low down the rank of what's important to him. And I think that's really encouraging because I think it gets us towards a world in which gender doesn't matter so much to people, especially at that age, you know, pre-puberty, children are pretty much the same. There is not a huge difference <laughs> between right. kids. There just aren't. All, all the testing that we have, all the data that we have tells us that there isn't huge differences between boys and girls. Um, so why do we, you know, work so hard in reinforcing the, these like little ideas about, oh, you should be like this, or you should dress like a princess, mm -hmm. and you should love football. And mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just very strange. The hardest thing as a parent, I think, is just to let your child be themselves. And I wonder sometimes if that's the thing that scares us the most. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I mean, again, given given what we do, uh, I spend a lot of time reading about this subject. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, I and I kind of get sick of it after a while reading another article about what it means to be a man. I mean, it's just like, mm. I, you know, I just want to, I'm just going to be a human being yeah. and be me. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I think I don't, I, and again, if I, if I'm, if I'm mixing this up, maybe it was another article I was reading about just brain. I mean, you talk about brains in, in inferior and, um, you know, the fact that there's going to be a man's brain and a woman's brain. And the reality is the brains are just different. I mean, yeah. it's almost like, Everyone's it's almost, brain like is different. almost like, almost like fingerprints. And yeah. so, um, you know, can we, can we get away from this mm -hmm. sexualizing of, of, or genderizing of, of all these aspects of who we are? Um, mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, it's exhausting at times. It is. And it, uh, yeah. And it's exhausting because we know that we're, there are expectations on us. Right. And if we could just let them go, how much freer would we feel? All of us. How wonderful would it be to not have society telling you all the time how you should behave or what you should be doing or the career that you should have? Um, just <laughs> let us do do our own thing the way that we want to do it. I was very lucky to have grown up in a family in which I didn't experience those pressures. My parents were very much of the view that work is work. It doesn't matter who does it, whether it's at home or or outside the home. It's all work. And they split everything down the middle. You know, I saw my my dad still does everything at home. My mom still does. My mom is still working. Mm -hmm. And um, so I never had that sense that, oh, you can't do engineering because you're a girl or you can't fix things. I still do the DIY at home. In fact, when I go to my in-laws, <laughs> my in-laws are both doctors, but they're not very good at DIY. They save the DIY for when I get there <laughs> so I can do it, but I can fix all their stuff for them. Um, and, you know, that's fine. What's the big deal? Why should all we right. have expectations on people? <laughs> are you particularly good at one DIY thing? No, so no, I'm not, but. I am so grateful for YouTube because on you, you can do yeah. anything. If you have a YouTube video, you can right. fix yeah. anything. So I've fixed right. all kinds of stuff around the house. I can't, I don't think I'd be great at, for example, I wouldn't try and plaster a wall because 
I'm not, I haven't done it before and I'm not sure I would be great at that unless I'd had loads of practice. So I, I accept that there's some things you need to develop skills at before you can be good at them, at them. But fixing things, I can fix pretty much anything. Well, and let's just say it's okay to outsource certain things, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, I'm a big outsourcer. Big outsourcer. <laughs> so so you teed this up, Angela, you're talking about expectations and pressure. Um, I have to ask if your publisher is not putting any pressure on you yeah. for your next book or where you're thinking that that next book, assuming there is one, would yeah. take you. Definitely. I want to keep writing until I'm dead. <laughs> That's my plan. I'm going to keep writing books. So I have some thoughts about what I want to do next, but I just started teaching. So I teach science writing at MIT now. And my focus is on that at the moment because developing that course or those courses is a lot of work. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. And what I'm hoping is that through my work at MIT and I'm doing a little bit at Harvard as well and a few other places, a few other universities is just to instill in the next generation of science writers, but also scientists, doctors, you know, engineers, um, how to think a little bit more smarter about race and gender in their work. There are a lot of misconceptions that people have about the nature of these categories and what they really mean. And so I, I'm kind of investing a lot of my time now in trying to just clear that up for people and just make sure they understand the histories of these ideas, where they come from and what we actually mean when we talk about sex or race or gender, all of mm -hmm. these things. So is, is science writing a class for journalists or for scientists? No, it's a graduate science writing program. So it's for people who have had careers in other things okay. often, um, but want to become science writers or okay. have done a bit of science writing and want to become science writers. It's a great program and the students are wonderful, wonderful people. Is this the so first, is this first year that you're doing it? Yeah, it is. Oh. It's the first semester. I've never taught before. I mean, I've given lectures obviously, but I've never yeah. taught a course before. So it's a steep learning curve for me, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's yeah. I'm, I think I'm getting as much out of it as they're getting. To be honest. You're, you're trying to, so I, I am a, a former engineer myself, and it sounds like you're trying to break down that normalized stereotype of engineers <laughs> being poor communicators, right? <laughs> Not being I'm able trying. to speak or talk about good luck. That's, that's, a, that's a small challenge, right? <laughs> it's a hard one. And I do sometimes, you know, it's interesting for me, especially when I read about Silicon Valley, I've been binge watching um, and <laughs> and reading about, you know, the Stan Bankman Freed um, oh, yeah, trial sure. and the, um, I just watched The Dropout about Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, my God. And I was that. absorbed by that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Consumed. And so I watch a lot of these things and I recognize that brain, that mindset, you know, that, that quite narrow visionary, you know, we can do this. We can fix people's problems through some kind of magic engineering bullet. It's it's very common, you you will know among engineers to think we can have technological solutions to the problems that we have. And um we forget that the real world doesn't work like that. It's yeah. much messier. People are not easily explained. They don't fit neatly into boxes. Um, and I think sometimes that's what's missing in engineering education is that broader, <laughs> that yeah. broader perspective that the world is not 
doesn't work like a machine. The world mm. works in a much more messy way. Yeah, the design thinking work out of Stanford is one of the more hopeful sort of human-centered engineering efforts that mm. I think we've seen in the last few decades. Um, that's exciting. And so mm. you're not going to give us a spoiler in, in terms of what your next book is going to be? No, I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> so you'll okay. have to wait, yeah. Fair enough. I'm sure we'll I'm be first thinking. to know, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, Angela, I know we're almost at time. Um, you may not know this about our podcast, but we mm. like to ask three canned questions at the end of, okay. of our guests. Um, so if you're willing, uh, the first question is, what do you wish you could have told your 10-year-old self? Uh, the thing is, with these questions... You have to live to know to know it. It's only through experience that you realize. But I would have maybe have said, don't worry about what other people think. Mm, yeah. It's as good as any. Yeah. We can keep telling ourselves that one. We now. can we can say yeah. that. It's right. it's never true. You know it, yeah. but you don't really realize it until you're older. Yeah, well, <laughs> wait till you hear the next two questions. <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, the second question is, um, do you have a mantra in life or a mantra these days? Um, I don't, but um, when I first started out in journalism, I did um, I did a little stint at New Internationalist, which is a magazine in Oxford. So where where just down the road from where when where I was living when I was at university, and the editor when I left gave me a book, and he inscribed in that book, "If you have the passion, you have the talent," mm. and I still mm. say that to students because I think you know we often think of writing talent as something you just have or you don't have and I don't think that's necessarily true I think we're all capable of writing beautiful things and important things it's about how much we care um mm. so that editor has since passed away and I still think about that sometimes mm. I love that that's yeah. gonna go on my <laughs> on my board um okay the, and the final question may go a little bit heavier um but what do you <laughs> Well, will not may. Uh, what do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? Oh, um, that she was a nice person. <laughs> That's why. I... See, this is it. Sean. You can tell that Angela is a, a gifted communicator by yeah. the succinctness yeah. with which she answered yeah, yeah, right. all three questions. That's beautiful. <laughs> um, did I miss anything? Is there anything else anyone else wants to? Cover? Yeah, anything else you want to share, Angela? No, that's great. I'm really grateful to have been on your podcast. Um, yeah, this is a demographic that I think with the patriarchs I've spread into, you know, um, the male podcast, <laughs> talking about masculinity and what it means. And I'm really grateful to have had the chance to talk to you about it. Yeah, it's a great it's a great message, I think, for our listeners and for the folks that the guys that are in our organization. So thanks for writing it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.